0: As we continue to make our way through 1 Corinthians, and particularly through the 15th chapter, providentially converging with this Easter season, in which we find ourselves now, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. It's in your pew Bibles at page 961. I've done it again, by the way, uh, just like last week. I bit off more than I could chew at the beginning of the week by hoping that we might make it all the way through verse 34 today. And that's why the bulletin says what it does. But we're actually going to stop instead at verse 28. Last week, we considered the implications if Christ is not raised. We, we rode that tiger, uh, so to speak, to see where a, a still-dead Jesus leads us and it wasn't pretty if Jesus is still dead Then we're lost indeed. We are still in our sin. We're wasting our time We're frankly wasting our breath in worship and certainly in preaching and in serving the Lord in this life We are to be pitied more than any people in the world if Jesus did not rise from the dead Sometimes we have to think through the negative, Paul is reminding us here, to understand, to come to understand the implications of unbelief. But Paul goes on to say, but, don't you love the buts in the Bible, these glorious buts? By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin, but... Now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Or, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you are washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And then my own favorite but. In the Bible, from Ephesians 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But, God, yes, remember that word, Iris. That's a wonderful word, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, which leads very nicely to the point Paul is going to make here in 1 Corinthians 15, this But let's pray, Father in heaven, thank you, thank you, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing to us the reality of our salvation through your word, for opening our eyes to receive your word, and trusting in you to receive eternal life, so that all of these things are true of us. Father, now we pray that you will either cause those children of yours in this house to revel in this salvation once again this morning and to understand it more deeply. Or, Father, for those in this sanctuary right now who are not trusting in you, that they may see what we have seen because of your grace only that opens the eyes to see Christ and to receive through him resurrection from the dead and eternal life. Do this for your glory, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. First Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 20, but, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death... By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. You are going to die. What a grand way to start a sermon, isn't it? I think I've just broken all the homiletical rules about how to start a sermon. But there it is. You're going to die. We're all going to die. But (laughs) we're not going to stay dead. Unless Christ comes first, I will lay you in your grave, or you will Place my body in mine, but we will not stay there. That's the the great message of the Bible. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we too shall rise. And we don't spend enough time, I don't think, meditating on and anticipating that resurrection, do we? We never confess our sin more truly or accurately than we do in the opening worship, the first Lord's Day of every year, when we confess to the Lord together, we have not, in obedience to your word, encouraged one another with words of our Redeemer's coming again, of the resurrection to life of the dead in Christ of the saints' everlasting rest, of the eternal city whose builder and maker is God. Maybe this is a weakness of our Western Christianity as a whole and a lesson we may learn from our brothers and sisters to the East. When Debbie and I were in Ukraine last fall and found ourselves in close contact with Eastern Christianity we were also surrounded by images of the resurrected Christ, of Christ risen from the tomb. As we toured the ornate sanctuary of the great Orthodox cathedral in Kiev, we, we came to a giant mural on the wall. Uh, two people there and a third at table with, with bread on it. The two uh, looking very closely and intensely at the third, who, if you look closely, you can see has marks in his hands, nail prints. You can deduce, of course, immediately who this is, right, in that mural. The two disciples from Emmaus, whom Jesus had joined on the road that Sunday probably mourning went to their house and and would disappear from their view just seconds from the from the scene that's portrayed in that mural according to luke's gospel i can't recall frankly a single picture of jesus on the cross in that sanctuary but many many pictures of him either rising from the dead or risen from the dead western christianity The focus is on the Christ of the cross, as demonstrated even in the primary statuary and artwork in a typical Roman Catholic church. What do you see when you walk into a Roman Catholic church? Of course, you see the crucifix, right? And the stations of the cross around the sanctuary, In the Eastern Church, it's Christ emerged from the tomb everywhere that you see and who is central. Then, of course, it's both on which the Bible focuses. Christ the crucified and Christ the risen from the dead. We want both. The apostles preached on both. There was always both. But, But do you notice what Paul was always preaching in the book of Acts? Do you remember this? What he was ridiculed for preaching, what he was on trial for preaching, what he bravely went to his death preaching. To the Jews in the synagogue, Paul went and preached as the good news, as the fulfillment of all of God's promises to the fathers, the resurrection. To the Gentiles, to the Greek philosophers and the rest at the Areopagus in Athens, Paul preached the resurrection. To the Romans he preached, you guessed it, the resurrection. Even as he stood trial before Rome's governor, Felix, he acknowledged that it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm in trial before you this day. Here in what is one of Paul's most famous chapters, certainly the best known in 1 Corinthians, next, of course, to the love chapter, chapter 13, Paul champions the resurrection. What does he have to say about the resurrection here? Many things, obviously, because it's taking us weeks to get through it. But there are many implications, aren't there, that we've seen of Jesus' resurrection, both for the future, but also for the present, both personal and cosmic implications, according to Paul. This morning, we're going to focus particularly on the future implications, both personal and cosmic in the future, and hopefully, the Lord willing, come back next week to consider the present implications for us of the resurrection. First, consider with me, dear flock, the personal implications the personal future implications for us of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead consider the the certainty the certainty of future resurrection with particular emphasis on that certainty our resurrection from the dead that is the fact that you and I will rise from the dead bodily from our graves on the last day is a certain reality because of Christ. Now what about Christ makes it so? Two things about Christ. He's the guarantor and he's the Savior. First, he's the guarantor of our future resurrection. That's Paul's confident point there in verse 20. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, he says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, what does that language mean, first fruits? It's not a, not a term you use very often, is it? Those of you who are familiar with your Bible, particularly with the earlier books of the Bible, know what first fruits means because the term is often used there, but even if you're not familiar with it, the definition is fairly easily deduced from the word, isn't it? From the expression, as the name indicates, it's the first fruits. It's the the first of the fruits or the produce that is harvested at harvest time. But you know that it's it's more than just that. First fruits is the promise. It's the promise of the harvest. When a, when a farmer sees the first fruits, the first Yield of the crops in the tree or field, he knows what's coming, doesn't he? It's the promise of more, of more to come, of full harvest. Just last Saturday, Debbie planted her garden in our backyard as she has year after year. It's a promising sight. I was looking at it this morning and my little stroll through the backyard, the s- seedlings that are now beginning to thrive and grow. Though, thanks to some greedy trees in our neighbor's yard who have sent their thirsty roots over the past few years into our garden, we don't anticipate as bountiful a harvest as in years past. We're not bitter about that, though. Not at all, really. No, no bitter roots here. Uh, I remember, though, in one of Debbie's first gardens that she grew where we live now, some pea plants that she planted along two entire sides of the raised uh, garden box, the bed. Now, neither of us could have anticipated until they were as tall as they were how, how much they were going to grow and grow and grow. I kept extending the poles, adding you know, chunks of PVC with... Uh, uh, what pipe clamps and the strings and as long as I did the peas kept outgrowing that and and then the blossoms, tons and tons of white blossoms and then one day appears on the supper table a bowl of the most scrumptious sugar snap peas you should dream of putting between your teeth and we knew that day. That it was just the beginning. And my, what a year that was. The promise, you see, the implied guarantee of that scrumptious first fruits, first yield, the first fruits on the table that night were the promise for a whole lot of good things in the future. And we were not disappointed. The promise was delivered. Well, just so Christ's resurrection from the dead is the promise of good things in the future. His empty tomb, his his victory, his triumph over death, is the guarantee. And so the risen Christ is himself the guarantor of our own resurrection. We may be certain, must be certain, of our own resurrection because the first fruits have already come. Christ is risen and we shall rise. His resurrection is the first fruit. Yours and mine will be the, the full harvest on the day of resurrection. He's the guarantor of that, but he's, he's not only the guarantor, he's also, second, the Savior. He can be the guarantor because he's the Savior, as a matter of fact. And how is he as our Savior? How has he accomplished this salvation of ours? Just this, by becoming the second Adam. The second Adam. There are two Adams in the Bible, aren't there? You know about the first Adam, virtually everyone does, whether they've even read their Bible or not. Virtually everyone knows, who've never even cracked a Bible binding, know that Adam is the first man who ever lived. And most people also know, whether from reading or from oral tradition, that Adam is the one who brought sin into the world. God created him sinless. Created sinless by the sinless God for a happy, sinless relationship with God. For a happy, a close relationship with God. But Adam ruined it, didn't he? He ruined it when he disobeyed God and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from which God had commanded him not to eat. But when he did that, when he took that fruit, And placed it to his lips and took that bite. It was not for himself only that he bit into that fruit, is it? He bit into that fruit for you and me as well, for the whole human race, and plunged us all in his disobedience, into sin and death. Every generation. Every generation since him is born into that sin, according to the Bible. Sinful from the time we were conceived in our mother's wombs. Theologians call it the doctrine of original sin. And doesn't that explain so much of your life? Doesn't that explain so much of your experience in this world? What you see going on all around you? We aren't sinners first because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Do you get that? You're not a sinner, first of all, because you sin. You sin today because you are a sinner. Because you were born that way. We were born sinners and therefore we sinned. And 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 I don't have to prove that to you. <laughs> Any of you who have been parents know this, don't you? You know this precisely from your own children. You never had to teach your children to sin, did you? You not one lesson. It comes naturally. Junior crosses his arms and defies his mother. He runs for the stove because mother said, don't go by the stove. He thrusts his hand into the candy dish. Why? Because father said, not the candy. Whatever it is, he does so because his little heart is sinful, because he bears in himself the heart of a sinner. He was born with it. We, were all, we all were. And blame Adam if you like, but that's it in a nutshell. Now, I know you may not think that very fair. You know, I had a Christian tell me a few years ago, the first thing he's going to do when he gets to heaven is find Adam and pop him right in the nose. Now, you may not think it's very fair that... You're a sinner today because of Adam. If so, then I anticipate you will find it especially disgraceful to say, so we'll be told that to the result of Adam's sin is your death. You are going to die. I am going to die because of Adam. Because of Adam. Because his sin has brought death to us. And with that sin came death, and we've been dying ever since, every generation. It, the percentage of of the possibility of death for everyone in this room is 100 percent you might even say that that we were born to die try that one in the maternity ward sometime oh what a beautiful baby oh yes yes he is a lovely child you know he's gonna die Or maybe not Uh, Try your theology lesson another day But for some death comes early For many more it comes in old age But the truth is the same for everyone Art is long and time is fleeting And our hearts though stout and brave Still like muffled drums are beating Funeral marches to the grave You can't prevent it Try as you might as the great Augustine wrote so many years ago, life is a race to the grave. Why? Because in Adam we all die. But. But. It's another one of those marvelous buts. Here is the good news we don't have to stay. You don't have to stay in Adam. You might have thought it unfair that in Adam we die but it may seem very different for you view to your view when you realize that in Christ all shall be made alive all that is verse 23 all who belong to Christ i remember the first time i heard tell uh, the old puritan idea thomas goodwin's illustration of two great men the first adam and the second adam or adam and christ both wearing great leather belts around their waist, on which are millions and millions of hooks. And dangling from those hooks on their belts are men, people, all the people who ever lived, all the people who ever will live, hanging on one of those belts or the other. The men on Adam's belt are dealt with by God according to Adam's sin. And so death, everlasting death, is their eternal future. But then those found hanging on Christ's belt, God is going to deal with according to Christ, the one whose belt to which they're fastened. They will have life (laughs) that is their future. It is in Christ on whose belt they are hooked that they will rise to life and not to death. I say I remember the first time I heard it because it was early in the morning uh, years ago when a local pastor and I used to, to meet for coffee in the wee hours of the morning listening to, and listen to sermons of varying quality on cassette tapes together. It was a pastor uh, by the name of Edward Ed Donnelly, an Irishman who kept talking about these men hanging from hooks. But I remember it so well because it was not hooks, it was Uh, In his Irish accent. Hooks. We're hanging from the hooks. Of Christ. And well that's Scottish. But you get the point. Uh, My question for you of course is. Whose belt are you hanging from? Stop and think. Whose belt. Are you hanging. On today. Where are you hooked. Today. On Christ's belt. Or on atoms. You know, at the end of the service today, two groups will walk out of the sanctuary. And only two. They're the same two groups who shop at Walmart. The same two groups who work in your office. The same two groups at your plant. The same two groups that you meet on the street. The only two groups, really, when you boil down all of humanity... Red and yellow, black and white, it all boils down to two groups and only two. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. That's all there is. The question I say again for you is this, in which group are you? Will you stick with the first Adam? Will you remain in your sin and in death and rise to death? Or will you come to the last Adam, to to Christ, to have your sins forgiven, to have a new life and resurrection one day to eternal life? You see, everyone was going to be resurrected one day. Jesus teaches this plainly. Everyone is going to rise from the dead. Everyone on both of those belts is going to rise from their graves. Even the most hardened atheist on Adam's belt, who denied God his very existence during this life, will one day rise from the grave at the sound of God's trumpet. The trumpet that will be blasted for the arrival of the very God he denied. But it will not be in his case a resurrection to life. Rather he will rise to judgment. Says Jesus in John 5. He will rise to die. And die. And die. And die. And die. And die. Forever and ever. And ever. In hell. But those who are in Christ. Will rise to live. Live. And live and live world without end, eternally, for eternal life. So I call on you, everyone in the hearing of my voice right now, come into that life. Don't you let this day pass this hour, but that you come into this life that is in Christ, that you turn from your sin and receive and believe in him and follow him, follow this Christ as your savior. And Lord, be moved from from Adam's belt to Christ's belt, where, as we sang just a few moments ago, you can never be taken For nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And he becomes your guarantor when he becomes your savior of eternal life, of resurrection to life. That's the the personal future for those in Christ, for you and for me who believe in him. We cannot leave off this morning, can we, without at least touching second on the cosmic future implications of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We read them there, verse 24. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to God the Father. After destroying every rule and every authority and power, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. How marvelously C.S. Lewis captures the spirit of the triumph of the risen Christ in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You remember after that long night of the great lion Aslan's death, there on the stone table on which he had died in utter humiliation... After that night, cracks that table with a deafening noise. As Lewis says, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate, Aslan defeated death. His first errand after comforting Susan and Lucy, who had so faithfully remained and kept watch at his place of death, reminds us of those faithful women first to meet the resurrected Christ faithfully kept watch there until the light of early dawn when the risen Aslan met them and explained the mystery to them. When a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, he explained, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. I say his first errand after his meeting with those faithful was to storm the witch's castle and to give life to those whom the witch had turned into stone. It was their resurrection, or, but that was just the beginning of the end. Off to take the witch, Aslan went, into all of her diabolical forces, whereupon finding them, and with a roar that shook Narnia from the western lamppost to the shores of the eastern sea he flung himself on the witch and to her terror and amazement destroyed her and all the evil forces with her you see our personal resurrections from the dead deer flock are but part of the story Just part of the story. King Jesus' work is to defeat all of his enemies, and and then when all is done, he will hand the kingdom to his Father. His enemies trampled, crushed, as we sing, under his feet. Redemption is not just a a personal thing, my brothers and sisters, It it, it is cosmic, it is complete. All of it, new heavens. New earth, every rule, every authority, every power, earthly and spiritual, who set itself up against him will be utterly destroyed. Even death itself will be dead that day. To use the words of John Owen, it will be the death of death. Oh, what complete conquest. What what utter victory our king will have in that day. And you with him. And I, my brothers and sisters, no wonder we pray God speed the coming of that day or pray just a few minutes ago, thy kingdom come. That's what we mean when we pray that. Now I have failed miserably this morning to preach to you these truths the way they should be preached the way I would if I possibly could. That's not false modesty on my part. That's the objective truth of the matter. If I could could paint this reality in words equal to its magnificence, you wouldn't be sitting. You'd be standing. In fact, you'd be tempted to run, if you could, into the future to see this and see it. Dear flock, you will before you imagine, you will see it through resurrected, glorified eyes the terrible splendor, the resplendent majesty of your risen, triumphant King Jesus. Amen. Thy kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thrill us again, we pray, with the realities, the grand realities, the, real, the most real things that cause what we see with our physical eyes to pale by comparison, in fact, even to seem unreal. We're living in the unreality now. The great realities have yet to dawn, and they will and as a matter of fact, they have, because Christ is risen from the dead, because his enemies already now are being trampled under his feet and being made a footstool for him who is on the throne to whom all authority and power belongs. But we shall see it, Father, we shall see the great consummation of it all. And we shall feast. What a feast that will be. The great wedding supper of the Lamb, when all of the great multitude, more than can be numbered, more than the stars in the sky or the, sea and the sand on the seashore, will gather at a sumptuous table and the rich wine and the delicious board our Father. Oh, speed the coming of that day. And in the meantime, at this table, may we taste and see that feast. May we foretaste it in sign and seal at this table, in the presence of the Lord, for you are here, O Lord. Thank you. Thank you for the blessings you lavish on us in this life and the thrill of the anticipation of the things yet to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name.